I'm Louisa Wilcox, and this is Grizzly Times, where we speak for the grizzly bear and the wild places it calls home. We introduce you to scientists, filmmakers, policy experts, and others who share their insights and experience speaking and working on behalf of the bear. At a time of unprecedented human-caused change, grizzlies depend on us more than ever. To learn more about what's happening and how you can help, subscribe to our newsletter at grizzlytimespodcast.org. Well, this is Louisa Wilcox with Grizzly Times, and I'm thrilled to talk today to Tom Mazarizi, who's been a bear ranger for over 15 years, first in Yellowstone and now in Glacier Park. Tom has had intimate experiences with grizzly bears and wolves and wolverines and other Northern Rockies wildlife, and he's also been in the company of leopards and lions and elephants and wild dogs and more in African parks, where Tom and his wife lead naturalist safaris. And today, we'll have a chance to dive into these experiences and, and Tom's reflection on management of two very different landscapes with large, charismatic wildlife. And I should say, too, that Tom is not wearing his park hat today, but is rather speaking for himself. So, Tom, welcome. Hi. Thanks, Elisa. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So let's start from the beginning. You grew up in, in New Jersey, but got interested in grizzly bears at a very young age with your seventh grade science project focused on grizzlies. So what was it that drew you at such a young age to the grizzly bear? I'm sure it was a, a picture that I saw, whether it's at my was at my grandfather's house in an outdoor magazine or maybe a, a, a picture in a book in a library. But... Um, obviously it was a long time before I actually set my eyes on a grizzly bear. Um, but yeah, there was just something, even just looking in the, at a picture of it, there was just, its appearance just had to, you know, I explained it's just, there's a par- powerful, wild, mysterious air about the animal just looking into a picture of it. And then, um, even looking into an eye where you see, find where I found a picture of a true wild grizzly bear. Um, there's just something you could see a sense of intelligence and wildness in its eyes. Um, but yeah, there's just something about the bear that just kind of struck a chord deep down. Um, yes, somewhere deep in my soul and growing up, uh, east of the Mississippi, uh, in New Jersey, that wildness just doesn't exist anymore. Um, so there's also maybe a little bit of yearning for something, um, there's just something out there that I wasn't experiencing in New Jersey. So it was, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's just, it, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's just, it's tough to put into words that you have to, yeah, for people who fall in love with grizzly bears can relate with this, but, um, but yeah, there's just something about the grizzly bear. Just even looking at a picture of it was just, you know, all, all inspiring. Well, you got a chance to see your first grizzly on a summer trip with your family. Uh, what was that like for you, and, and how did that experience influence your life trajectory? Um, so it was our second trip to Yellowstone. We, was, we did the family RV trip through the Rockies, and I remember our first the first year we were out in Yellowstone, we didn't see a bear, and I remember being really disappointed. But um, I remember we were we were heading south and uh we noticed that there is just south of mud volcano and there's two pullouts on the riverside and remember 
dropping down and there's a little bit of traffic not much and then there was a ranger parked i think one of the pullouts and then we pulled into one and then the ranger i'm not sure if it was law enforcement or non-law enforcement but pointed out that there's bears across the river and there's a sow with two cubs the cubs of the year and uh yeah that was our first grizzlies i remember one of the cubs had an obvious injury where it didn't, wasn't using its back legs very well, probably result of a probably a, a male bear, boar grizzly bear trying to trying to kill it. But it was uh, but it was keeping up pretty well with uh, its sibling and its mom. And yeah, that was it was just it was like wow, uh, a dream you know a dream come true to see a grizzly bear in the wild. It was uh, it was pretty 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 fascinating. Uh, there's just there's so much. Um, I think from, from there, I kind of, I kind of knew that I was going to end up Yellowstone someday, uh, working, uh, obviously my mm-hmm. passion was to try to get into research, but obviously my, my direction went towards the protection, uh, protection, uh, uh, line of work with working as a ranger and working to protect bears. So, um, but yeah, mm-hmm. that was, uh, that's what kind of, yeah, it was a pretty, pretty awesome experience. I'll never forget it. Well, it seemed like your your early dream came true of becoming a ranger and, you know, getting into Yellowstone and, and getting into grizzly bear work. And and you, you've been able to see so many bears up close and, and personal. And, and one in particular I, I wanted to ask you about was Scarface, a very famous Yellowstone bear that it sounds like you saw him right after his injury, uh, presumably for another bear. So what kind of bear was he in? And what was it like, too, to manage the huge throngs of people that he attracted along the roadsides of Yellowstone? Uh, yeah, the first time I saw Scar- Scarface, yeah, was probably soon after he received that uh, wound to the side of his face. Um, it was obviously a bear jam going up the road towards Dunraven Pass from Canyon, and just chasing people away from him back into their car and whatnot. But I just remember the glance he gave me was—it's uh, tough to explain. It wasn't aggressive, but it, I mean, he could—it was just so intense. But at the same time, mm-hmm. he just so that you know, just a genuine tolerance uh, of of people and, and the present being in close proximity to people. But at the same time, he had an air about him that you didn't want to, you didn't want to cross, you didn't, didn't want to cross a certain threshold uh, with them just out of respect for him. Not necessarily you felt like he was going to do something wrong. Um, but yeah, he was uh, he just, he's a great bear. I, I saw him quite a bit. <laughs> I, um, and he was, I mean, I wouldn't say he was a celebrity bear, like three ninety nine. I mean, every time he would be out, he'd always seem to find good places to show up where at least there's places for people to park and watch him. But there's <laughs> one time, yeah, there's one time I, uh, um, I remember I was with two other seasonal rangers and we were going into on the Howard Eaton trail and that trail starts at, Canyon and head south, and that trail actually connected to the fishing bridge. But that trail, a little ways in, there's the Wrangler Lake area. I know the wolves that year had a den and a rendezvous site back there. And I closed it because we just didn't want people sneaking back in there and disturbing uh, disturbing them. So my, the rangers and I were doing a patrol, make sure nobody was back in there. 
And I remember just seeing such fresh grizzly tracks, and they're huge grizzly tracks. And then I told mm-hmm. people, say, hey, we're, we're probably going to run into a bear pretty soon. And then sure enough, about 100 yards away, there was Scarface. And I knew kind of where he was going. So so we backed out of there, and I called another ranger on the road. I'm like, hey, just head to the north end of Hayden Valley by the uh, Mary Mountain Trail. He's probably going to come out somewhere near there and cross the river. And that's exactly what he did. Um, mm-hmm. And then, uh, yeah, but probably the one of the most um, – one of the greatest memories I had of him, I was responding to a report of a grizzly bear uh, somewhere along the north rim of the Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone. And I thought, wow, that's not really a great place for a bear to be with just as many people. So I remember driving down the wrong way of the one-way road because it was all just one way. And I'm looking for him, and all of a sudden I see him, and he's just cruising right down the paved pathway. And I'm following him, <laughs> and you don't want to just try to haze or scare him at that point because he don't know where he's going to go and there's still people around that still hadn't seen him. I remember he walked right behind somebody that was looking down the canyon and the person had no idea that there's this <laughs> four to 500 pound grizzly bear about 20 feet behind him. And then he <laughs> dropped, started to drop down towards the trail that takes you to the um, brink of the lower falls. And then, yeah, he, uh, and then it was kind of a little bit of a human rodeo getting people out of the way, but you know, he, he moved out of the way eventually and uh, headed out towards the road and we made sure he was able to get across the road safely. But, um, but yeah, it was just um, really just, he obviously he's been through a lot of battles just from not just that big scar on his face, but obviously just from years of probably being a big dominant bear. And, um, but yeah, the way he ended his life was unfortunate. I'm sure that'd be another segue to probably another question, but, um, but yeah, Scarface was you know another another example of a bear that is tolerant of us as long as we can show tolerance of them. They can make they can make mm-hmm. a life a safe life along to, uh, on the fringes of humanity if we if we if we're willing to take the time to let it happen. Yeah, and what you're describing with Scarface um, is. You know, your approach to that situation, I assume other people in Yellowstone, uh, the attitude of forbearance, as long as this bear, I mean, he was in and around people, he was trying to mind his own business, do his own thing, and you were not, you know, hazing him with rubber bullets or trying to scare him. Uh, you know, maybe you get a little tough, but that was, a, that was an obvious choice on the part of yourself, but also the park, um, that they decided that they weren't going to you know, deliberately frightened a lot of these bears that were by the roads. No, I mean, there's, I mean, we didn't want them hanging out in, in inside developed areas. Uh, every now and then I know, I think we use probably a cracker around just to get them moving out of an area, but Yellowstone's pretty, mm-hmm. had a pretty, pretty good hands-off approach. I think in all mm-hmm. the years I was there, I don't think, I don't remember even using a rubber, rubber bullet. And I don't even remember us even having them, uh, available. Um, and even if the crack around mm-hmm. was used, it was used in a pretty rare occasion. But um, just yeah, that's the that's the philosophy I grew up in was the Yellowstone philosophy. And obviously, yeah, we wouldn't want bears hanging so close to the road where they put themselves in immediate danger. But um, right. there wasn't necessarily a line drawn in the sand. If there's bears being bears and using natural food sources, we we did our best to manage people and. Um, Keep mm-hmm. people away and allow the, allow the bear to 
do bear things. I mean, we don't have to be there. The bear does. Uh, Right. And clover is a wonderful food source and all. Unfortunately, that grows quite a bit <laughs> along roads, road, just because, yeah, right. along the roads and the shoulders. So, um, yeah, yeah, it could be a challenge. But yeah, he. I just remember one time he was he kind of had he probably suffered a wound, another injury. Probably he was limping one year, and I remember he was just on the edge of uh, our housing area, and uh, he was starting to move into the housing area. But I was like, well, you know, he's injured. I'm not, I'm just going to keep an eye on him and yeah, we'll just, I'll just mm. escort him through if he's uh, needs to move through the housing area. But no, he kept, he had it, he had his route. He knew where to go and where he couldn't go. And, um, but yeah, mm. um, yeah, he was a fun bear, big boy. <laughs> big boy. Oh, well, you know, maybe, maybe jumping forward to his uh, unfortunate demise and tragic demise outside of Yellowstone's northern boundary where Scarface was killed in 2018. And it was right before the government had made the decision uh, to remove Endangered Species Act protections for Yellowstone grizzlies. And, and some have suggested that Scarface's death was it serves as kind of a cautionary tale about what would happen to other lesser known park bears after delisting. Maybe you could talk a little bit about your view of this. Yeah, I still, yeah, I, I think it's still pretty murky the details around exactly mm-hmm. what caused that hunter to shoot um, Scarface. Or I think his uh, official number, I think, was 210. So he was definitely a, a bear collared and tagged early in the early in the park service but mm-hmm. I, I mean i have no doubt that somebody probably shot him that was just scared i'm sure he yeah. that bear was just probably walking through and you know walking probably just walking and somebody mm-hmm. freaked out and shot in quote self-defense and mm-hmm. regardless of it's this is where like regardless of the endangered species act protection i think there's this um the whole self-defense argument, the essentially during this elk season, hunting season, the fall, essentially is a grizzly season because a lot of bears are being shot in self-defense. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's, yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's some, every now and then there's going to be, a, I mean, there's legitimate self-defense and it's unfortunate, but I just mm-hmm. don't, I just don't buy the fact that with as many bears are being shot in self-defense as people are just, are being a little bit too quick to the trigger. Uh, Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think some some of the activities that yeah. uh, that take place out there just um, I think people putting themselves in in bad positions. I mean, sneaking around the woods right. is one thing, but yeah. you're making a kill towards the end of the day and knowing mm-hmm. you have to go back the next day to get it, even though you left the mm-hmm. carcass in a gut pile there. You're just you're just ask, asking for it, and the bear. Right. You know, most I bet you most of these instances were probably just bluff charges and probably weren't even really as close as as they're saying. But it's um it's just you know, the irrational fears that, you know, just that lead to an itchy trigger trigger finger. Um right. but as far as the endangered species act itself, um boy, it's uh boy, it's a it's it's done a lot good for bears, but I think there's there's some flaws in it that I'd love, I'd love to see change, just the fact just facing num- setting a recovery at a minimum number of bears to maintain recovery. I just think right. that's just, that, yeah. yeah, that opens up, that, you know, that 
as we're seeing with wolves now, it's just there's no science, there's no reason for the, the rate of the wolves are being killed out, outside national parks right now in the West. There's there's no mm-hmm. reason to let the level of uh, killing that's going on. And how do you, what makes you think that's going to be any different with bears? Um, it's, uh, I mean, uh, there's just that lack of trust, I think, with um, state agencies and how they manage predators. I mean, right. the, um, yeah, there's there's a whole lot of a whole lot of ways they can go go this go with this, but it's um, as far as hunting and the Endangered Species Act, I think, um, yeah, hunting. I mean, what they I think what they proposed last time when they were proposing hunting, they were they were going to auction off what was it? I think like set a quota at about twenty mm-hmm. bears, but that's regardless yeah. if he had sixty bears killed up to that point, whether it's in self-defense management actions poachings yeah i mean it's like how how do you justify killing more bears when you've essentially already exceeded a quota and you don't in hunting season right. there, there hasn't even been an official hunting season i hate the argument of well hunters pay for conservation as well that's the system you set up uh give us a different system mm-hmm. um yeah it's like it's no, it's 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 just really an un, an unfair system, and uh, I think and they haven't come up with any 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 ideas or remedies to try to raise money from you know your non-consumptive users of wildlife. It's, right. um Yeah, it's it's just kind of sad. I think just hunting in a way. I'm not anti-hunting. Trophy hunting, I just don't. I just it's it's tough to stomach because. A lot of people are just going out for a trophy. To me, mm-hmm. I think they're they're not interested in the meat or anything else. They just they just want the head or the hide. Um, if they have to pack the meat out, they'll pack the meat out. But it's just a, uh, especially within the lower 48. And, you know, I just grown up in a time where you just got to enjoy a population of animals that weren't mm-hmm. at least sport hunted. And uh, it's just I don't know there's a philosophical dilemma with that just you know it's just it was just something about enjoying a population of animals that weren't subjected to essentially somebody just wanting to shoot them because they want to they, they want a rug tom let's turn to the topic of poaching around yellowstone the number of bear deaths being investigated for possible poaching has skyrocketed over the last decade and deeply troubling incidents are coming to light In one, hunters in Wyoming shot into a group of grizzlies that had been drawn to the carcass of an elk one of them had killed and left, and they gunned down one of the bears. This after the hunters had watched the bears they had baited from a safe distance for a long time. And a recent story involves a mother grizzly with young cubs that was found riddled with bullets in eastern Idaho. What's your take on why this malicious killing is occurring, and what can be done about it? Well, you're talking about just there's there's those people that just kind of anti-government. They they equate mm-hmm. predators to government, maybe because maybe they, they, you know you know they're, those are the type of people who are going to look in the Dangerous Species Act. Like, right? Yeah, just, this is yeah. It just you're yeah. You're, it's an attack on maybe rural America, attack on people trying mm-hmm. to make their living. You know, that are tied to the land, which you know it's it's not. Um, it's uh 
it, and then I think the other thing too, as far as the poaching is just the fear aspect. It's just that, that mm-hmm. self-defense argument where mm-hmm. an animal, you don't, don't need to shoot it. It's uh, but so tough to, to disprove self-defense. I mean, essentially you either have to have a, yeah. a witness video evidence or just like evidence of a bear literally got shot in the butt. And, mm-hmm. uh, um, and this is where I kind of, we're inside the park that it's become so 2009 we um the credit card act gave us guns back in the park uh it, it's right. kind of an interesting yeah and uh it just that from that that self the fear self-defense standpoint um i think is uh especially inside our busy parks it's just it's amazing we haven't had more incidents and i attribute that to the wildlife more than the people but there's just such a mm-hmm. gross ignorance of of knowledge that people have and uh and when you talk to people in their in the back country and we have people that are just they're almost surprised to think oh you mean there's bears in this trail i'm like yes you're in glacier national park or you're in yellowstone national park you're in grand teton national park you, your your chances of potentially seeing a bear are actually pretty good you know it, what have you done mm-hmm. to take to educate yourself to kind of to kind of mm-hmm. temper those fears it's uh uh, mm-hmm. And then, yeah, you get someone to shoot something in self-defense, and then maybe they decide to shoot and shovel it up because they're they're worried about getting. Uh, who knows? I mean, I think that's that's the other yeah. kind of another aspect of poaching, another motivation for poaching. So, um, yeah. Well, so what 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 do, what can be done about it? I mean, it seems like with Glacier and Yellowstone, you've got huge educational efforts underway, you know, to educate the public about how you behave around these large carnivores and and avoid conflicts and the like. And that is only getting you so far, as you said. So what do you what do you do about the poaching that is actually, you know, hampering grizzly bear recovery right now? I think the sad thing is I think um I don't think anyone really ever knows the the uh level of poaching that's out there um i mean mm-hmm. the, there's the personnel's not there the funding's not there um i think really to really do you think to try to even get a handle on it it's just the the agencies whether it's the park service the forest service state agencies fish and wildlife service i mean there's people out there that feel very strongly about poaching and actually are out there are out there and want to do the right thing mm-hmm. but boy you can only do so much with the uh, you know, when you have like one Forest Service ranger assigned to you know, hundreds of thousands of acres, right? You know, there's there's a there's a lot somebody can get 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 away with. I think there has to be. If I mean, if uh, number one, we should try to determine the extent of what poaching there is, and mm-hmm. but at the same time, I think some of the best things you can do is preventative instead of trying to sit and wait and right. catch. Uh, I think part of the preventative right. aspect is having more, more of a presence. Um, you got to mm-hmm. build up relationships with the communities. I mean, even the people that you don't mm-hmm. agree with, because ultimately the people you catch, someone's, there's no, the shoot, shovel, and shut up thing just doesn't work because the shut up thing doesn't work for a lot of folks. There's going to be bragging somewhere. I mean, right. Some, someone's going to, someone, someone's going to tell somebody what they did. Um, mm-hmm. But also you have to create, create, it's kind of like a, it's kind of like community policing type thing is kind of be able to work with different, different people from different walks of life and different 
you know, have different views on wildlife, but ultimately, um, if, if you get people working together on the ground from the ground up, I think that's the, mm-hmm. really that's the best way to get anything done. Really, you can't the wait mm-hmm. for something to happen from the top down is just it's never going to happen. It's definitely mm-hmm. have to work from the bottom up, and that's just working with you know your your people who are out there in the woods uh, hunting for the right reasons. You know, taking taking all the steps to uh, to uh, you know that are tr- that are true hunters, true sportsmen. It's not uh, that are out there in the woods because they're the ones that are going to be seeing a lot of things. And then obviously, just us, uh, whether in law enforcement, whatever uh, age it is, is trying to get out there too and at least have a presence and show you have a presence and maybe kind of prevent some things from happening. But um, mm-hmm. it's tough. I mean, you look around the world at the, at the extent that animals are disappearing and. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's habitat loss. Habitat's really ultimately is going to is the big key. But mm-hmm. uh, you can see what's happened with you know what still happens around the world with the illegal wildlife trade, um, right? And yeah, and with the with the weapons of the killing instruments we have today, as opposed to 200 years ago. I mean, heck, we wiped right. out almost 50 million bison and 50,000 grizzlies with pretty basic. Weapon, basic rifles compared to what's available today. I mean, it's 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 kind of scary. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, yeah. I mean, I think no one really truly knows the level of poaching that is probably out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it's much more serious than we than we believe. Just the cases that are that are actually getting prosecuted are pretty appalling, and there are many other cases that are not. So that's you know. that's I mean, the big three in Wyoming. Mm-hmm. The prosecution. And the appetite for prosecution, and then, and then the what the uh, outcome, what the punishment would be. And I guess that's ultimately mm-hmm. too is uh, is the um, the appetite by the states to prosecute. You know, it's right. not going to help if they're just going to give people slap on the wrist for for right. poaching a, a female grizzly bear. You know, uh, mm-hmm. so but yeah, that that's a huge yeah. aspect of it. <laughs> Well, maybe on a more positive note, uh, yeah. Matthew had this amazing experience uh, after picking up a little teddy bear that was melting out of a snowbank. Uh, maybe you could share the story of how you helped reunite that teddy bear with its owner. Well, actually, I was I was off that day, so I wasn't actually working the day it was reunited. But mm. what led to it, mm. so a few days before the bear was reunited with the family, um, I was monitoring a grizzly bear and a yearling cub and another big male grizzly bear that were creating a little traffic um, uh, in this area called the Pecan Pass Trailhead. And then all of a sudden, the big boar came down to the trail and then um, started to go up the trail, kind of moved some people away, but then he started walking up the trail. And I knew it was that time of the day, it was towards the end of the day, you're going to have people coming off the trail. So... And essentially, he kind of followed this big boar. He was probably you know, 100 feet in front of me, but I was trying to keep him in view and then kind of keep keep an eye for people coming down. I mean, you can't haze a bear in that instant because only if you haze it, he's going to start running down the trail towards who knows what. And every time you know mm-hmm. see someone coming down, I'd be like, hey, you know what? It's okay. Bears just walk on the trail, just move off, and he'll move by you. So I did that mm-hmm. for a while to get him to safe that bear to safety, and then 
and then all of a sudden that sow and cub were coming up the trail. And then I had a group of, I was escorting a group of six people down. So we, we kind of moved off the trail, had a pretty fun viewing opportunity with her until she was able to move around us um, and get past us. And then finding out from people that are hiking, there was also other bear sightings further up the trail. So what I ended up doing, I had to close that trail uh, just because hmm. of the amount of bear activity. And so hmm. on my days off, there was rangers that were on the trail patrolling it to see if uh, the bear activity is still uh, high or if, or if not, they would open it. But the vehicle that I kept that the teddy bear in, um, uh, one of the ra- other rangers was using it that day, and she parked it at the trailhead, and then it was friends of the family that pulled by that trailhead. I think they were planning the hike, but then they saw the teddy bear in, on the dash of my patrol car. And, yeah, the uh, rangers that were working that day did a lot of work to get that uh, um, bear out of the vehicle and back to the family. But, yeah, so essentially it was it was really – I found it because of bears because I was up kind of removed some bear closure signs, and then essentially that bear was found again by the family because of essentially bears and the bear closure signs. So it was uh, <laughs> it's mm-hmm. a, kind of serendipitous uh, in a way. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it was really a – a fun, fun little story. Mm-hmm. So who was its owner? Um, her name is Naomi. Uh, mm-hmm. And then the uh, the family or the Pascals, they live in Jackson Hole. And uh, mm-hmm. so Naomi, they, they adopted Naomi from Ethiopia. And Naomi, the first thing Naomi got uh, was this teddy bear, even before she actually got to meet her parents. So, and this Naomi this teddy bear has really traveled with her everywhere, wherever the family has gone. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I think they adopted her when she was maybe two years old. And so now she's seven mm-hmm. years old. So, I mean, it's – so, yeah, that yeah. so it was definitely a – it was just – was was more than just a, a simple stuffed animal for somebody. This was something that was, uh, you know, pretty special from – from uh, the day they came into the lives of, the, of, of, her, of, her, of her family now. So – so yeah, it was a yeah, and I, I finally got to meet the family through a Zoom call. Um, oh, you did! Uh, yeah, oh, fun. Weeks. I did. Yeah, a couple like a couple weeks after uh-huh. they got the uh, they got the um, bear back. So, um, but yeah, it was <laughs> a it was a fun story. Uh, nice yeah, I mean, story. did you have any? Yeah, it is so heartwarming. Did you have any sense when you saw this little teddy bear melting out of the snowbank and picked it up and stuck it in your dash that you, that you it might get reunited? Or was it just kind of like an idle thing where you just picked it up and put it there? Uh, you know, I just didn't want the bear to end up in the trash, so I just, mm. you know, there was just definitely just something. I was like, boy, it was so weathered. I figured it had a feeling that it had been out there for a long time even though it was mm-hmm. just off the trail. So I just didn't really mm-hmm. even occur to me that somebody was really even looking for it. So, yeah. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I wasn't surprised that it was mm-hmm. found. Um, but at the same time mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, this would a great little mascot for a, a ranger vehicle. <laughs> just, it was a, and it was a good con- con- a conversation starter too. When I just be out and about, uh, mansion bear jams or whatnot, or somebody just sees it and just it's a just to start a 
conversation of how it came to be in my truck. I wanted to go back to about when you talk about, you know, what drew me to Grizzlies and kind of how I kind of yeah. came into know about Grizzlies. I just, I, I want to mention that Frank and John Craighead, I mean, Oh yeah. You know, my first science project um, probably was all, it's all because of all the research I was able to dig up uh, that they did. Yeah. And, uh, and obviously they were probably a big influence on my life as far as wanting to use my interest in just biology and wildlife biology and environmentalism and, and then grizzly bears and then the Yellowstone grizzly bears. It just seemed to be just a little extra, little extra wow. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. the, not only being a grizzly bear, but being a Yellowstone grizzly. And um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you remember the, story there's i remember there's a life magazine article and I remember there's a big mm. picture of a roaring grizzly bear on on it i wouldn't be surprised mm. it was actually bark the bear <laughs> in his young oh, his young young days i don't bear. know <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. um but uh but yeah it, i know it touched on the the swiss woman that was uh killed in the yellowstone backcountry and then another person that was killed outside yellowstone by a bear i think the following mm-hmm. year but the, the article the, it was nice. They didn't sensationalize the killing. They talked more about the plight of grizzly bears and Yellowstone grizzlies. And, um, but yeah, I think, and then I remember even writing the superintendent, it was superintendent Barbie back then. I remember I was still, I think I was probably 11 years old or 12 years old. And I said, Hey, you know, she was oh. hiking alone. She, you shouldn't kill the bear, but you know, and then, you know, I remember him writing back and, oh. yeah. And just, you know, explaining and, Anytime I ask for uh, bear research or stuff, they always sent stuff. But I actually got to meet Superintendent Barbie, I think, 2012 or 11. Um, mm-hmm. And I told him, say, hey, because of you and because of the effort you took to just respond to a kid's letter, kind of led me, kind of made me want to become a ranger or at least wanted me to kind of work in Yellowstone and work with wildlife or do whatever I could do to protect the park and wildlife. So. You just never know the uh, influence you might have on somebody. Uh, and, I, yeah, I, I thank him for that. That was pretty uh, – he didn't have to do that. And especially nowadays, probably most most people in his position don't even have the time to even consider that. So, But what you say is so important that, that actually, you know, the simple act of responding on the part of Superintendent of Yellowstone to an 11-year-old kid's question it can be transformative, as you were describing, yeah. in terms of your life and your trajectory. And I think we lose track that of, of we want management to be much more effective on a global level, but but then where it really gets down, what it really gets down to is these personal influences, these personal connections. And you know whether it's with a teddy bear or you know in your case with managing grizzly bears, that um, you, you, one person can have a huge, huge impact on on another's life. Let's get back to, you know, you were just talking about um, managing people on the trail and you're in Glacier and a lot of people were on this trail. And it, in, since COVID, park use has exploded and no surprise to you, but in places like Glacier and Yellowstone, there are just throngs of people who are you know, hungry for a taste of the wild and just want to get outside and are showing up in places like Yellowstone. How are you coping with the throngs of visit- visitors coming to the parks? Uh, it's, it's challenging. I think um, uh, it's a welcome challenge. I mean, 
do have to remember the vast majority of the people are there doing it right, obeying the laws, respecting mm-hmm. wildlife, respecting nature. But there's always going to be those that don't, whether they do it intentionally or unintentionally. Um, yeah, I think the big thing is we do our best to try to educate visitors uh, about the do's and don'ts of being in the park. Um, but it's really, it's, it's, it's almost impossible nowadays. I mean, it's, Mm. but at the same time, there's also no excuse for people not to take some responsibility to learn about the areas they're going. I mean, there's so much, there's so much information at our fingertips. It's not like 40 years ago where people had, if you wanted to learn about Yellowstone, you had to go to a library and take out books and, and actually have a little bit, a little bit more effort to learn. It doesn't take much to, Find out, find out what it, you know, what basic bear behavior, you know, basic elk behavior, it just or mm-hmm. flowers that are growing. It just there's so much information that's out there that people, I think, a lot of people should. Some people you come across. It's just a common question I get is, well, what do we do if we run into a bear? I say, well, mm-hmm. uh, and, and obviously they they haven't they haven't gotten that information. They, whether they whether they tried to and couldn't find it or they just didn't take the effort and somehow they made it to the trailhead without uh, probably even opening their park newspaper, if they even got a park mm-hmm. newspaper. So it's a, so a big thing that I do is education. Uh, so mm-hmm. I would talk to people, says, hey, this is, this is what to expect. Um, and, if, and in some of the trails and glacier, because you obviously get those bears have become so tolerant they're forced to become tolerant of people because they have to they have to do what they need to do to survive but it's mm-hmm. it's um that one of the big things i kind of um try to tell people especially with the fact that some people more and more people are carrying guns in the parks like if a bear's walking down the trail it's not a time to panic it's not mm-hmm. the bear's not acting aggressive if it's just walking yeah, and I would try mm-hmm. to tell people, say, okay, this is what this is what kind of an aggressive bear would do. This is what a non-aggressive bear would do. This is what essentially mm-hmm. an indifferent bear would do. And you just try to educate people just to kind of ease their fears. And there's sometimes mm-hmm. you get people are so afraid. And I just I, I get to a point said, so listen, if you're that nervous about seeing a bear on a trail, it's probably you shouldn't be hiking this trail. Um, right. But I also tell people, says, listen, I've been spending my career, my life, a good chunk of more than half my life in grizzly bear country. When, mm-hmm. I, when I'm not working, when I'm out, in the, I've, I'd never carry a firearm. I don't, I don't, I still don't own a firearm. The only firearms I have is mm-hmm. what I'm issued well, working as a ranger. So I've, I've never felt mm-hmm. the need to have a firearm mm-hmm. uh, hiking in grizzly bear country. Um, mm-hmm. And so it, it, it the big thing is try to ease people's fears as far as with with right. bears. It's just educate mm-hmm. and show how like, hey, it's awesome if you do get a chance to see a bear and try and try to mm-hmm. teach them to kind of do the right thing when they're out there when they encounter a bear. Well, maybe let's switch gears, uh, you know, to Africa and take a journey to yes. Africa with you. Uh, you and your wife uh, honeymooned in a park in in Zambia, and then you found yourself going back and managing a bush camp in the midst of all these kinds of animals, lions and leopards and honey badgers, and then you started a guiding business in Africa centered on wildlife viewing. You've said your experiences there have been transformative, and maybe you can explain how. Um, 
I think somebody who's really a big pastime is just enjoying the opportunity just to watch animals in the natural environment. Africa is just is the zenith of that. It's um, mm. yeah, it's yeah, it's it's tough to explain. I always explain it. It's like when you step foot. Uh, and my first place was in Zambia, uh, and the park was called South Wangwa National Park. But it, it's just—it's a weird feeling. It's like deep down in your in our genetic makeup, it's like we almost sort of know this is where we uh, evolved as a species. It's like some like familiarity with the area is just—it's—it's it's something just intangible, innate that um, that mm. you feel when you step foot in the into the bush. And then the wildlife, oh my gosh! I mean, where where there are where wildlife still thrive, it is just twenty four hours a day. It's just everywhere, just life everywhere. All different sizes of animals, from elephants down to the elephant shrew, hundreds of different species of mm. birds. It's uh, it's intoxicating, and uh, and then obviously being in the parks, is they're not crowded by any means like an American park. I mean, um, it's uh. That was that was just a breath of fresh air. Just be able to be at a nice wildlife sighting and maybe have two or three other game viewing vehicles there, not a line of cars that's going to last for hours. <laughs> but um, mm-hmm. it's just it's just it's just phenomenal. I mean, it's just seeing all these animals for the first time. I think. Obviously, there's always, no matter what animal you see for the first time, there's always a sense of uh, excitement with it. But um, it's just, yeah, it's just amazing. It's just the the diversity of life and how intricate it all was. And I just, there was one time I remember when I was managing a camp and we had a water hole in camp. And usually about around 11 o'clock in the morning, you'd get like a rush. And then and mm. one time there was there was elephant, giraffe, impala, baboons, uh, warthogs. Um, I think there was even zebra. Um, I think kudu. It was just I called it, it was like wow. a seven layer cake of life. Yeah, I call it a layer cake of life. It's just like you have all these different levels mm. of animals all sharing a water source, and it's like for lack of a better term is like the humanity in it. It's like, here's all these animals, different species have figured out, figured it out and they're getting along and they're using the same resource without a whole lot of, um, not a whole lot of argument or despair or, um, fighting mm-hmm. over, over the water. But it's, it was, um, yeah, it's, a uh, it's pretty, it was pretty special. Um, and then obviously just the aspect of how parks in general are managed, the protected areas they are managed. A lot of it relies on guided guides only mm-hmm. to kind of at least control control people for their safety and for wildlife safety and try to prevent um, a disruption to to wildlife as much as possible. Yeah, do you think that has uh, potentially that 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 approach of relying on guiding services uh, as a way to enter the parks? Is that is that something that uh, you think the park service here could look at? I think I mean there's there they got to be look they have to look at different solutions and uh, mm-hmm. and unfortunately um, 
with as heavy the parks are used, I mean, we're going to have to give up some of the uh, independence that we've come to uh, enjoy parks. I think guiding would be one way of doing it. Um, more guiding and less, unfortunately, less independent use of the park potentially. Um, uh, I think if I had a crystal ball, I mean, I looked at it this way. I remember talking about it. how can we increase at least the traffic, the vehicle traffic in the park. So, like, yeah, you have all these hotels that go that are outside the park. And every time they build a new hotel, it's another how many people a day, another how many people a week and a month that will come into a park. How about if you kind of encourage those those hotels and uh, camps, lodges to essentially hire and run a guiding program where I'm not talking about big tour buses or giant vans, at least something to where you have a guide, have, at least have more people going into the park guided. Um, mm-hmm. um, it reduced the amount of, reduced the amount of traffic flow. Uh, maybe have more people with somebody who's educated about being in, being in bear country or being in, being in the woods or being in whatever park it is. Um, mm-hmm. You have at least a little bit more of a, kind of a little bit help it kind of would help a little bit i would think kind of quote control Mm -hmm. the masses it's uh i think that's a part of a bigger solution but i think um it works and granted um parks in africa don't necessarily see the um visitation of yellowstone or glacier but it's i mean i think Mm -hmm. There's an Ngorogoro crater gets some like 700,000 visitors a year, I think, if it just read. Uh, I'm sure mm. the Maasai Mara and Serengeti are pushing a million. Kruger's pushing a million. And still, those areas are essentially guided only, with very few places where people can go unguided. Um, and mm. it works. It's not ideal. Um, mm-hmm. But um, if you didn't, I just... I. <laughs> I cringe if we had if we had the African wildlife in, in our parks here with what I you know with what I have seen and still see how people act around wildlife it would it just it would be a nightmare I couldn't imagine just seeing right. like, a breeding herd of elephants with young calves with a bunch of people walking out to go say hi to them it's just like it would be it'd be catastrophic or somebody mm-hmm. walking up to a pride of lions on on a kill with with the young ones it's. Uh, mm-hmm. Most, yeah, really, most likely the lions would probably run away, but the elephants wouldn't. <laughs> you, you approach yeah. a breeding herd of elephants, uh, it, it's it's not going to go end well for you. So it's, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, I think guiding is definitely a big, it's going to be, uh, has to be considered for any future management of uh, visitors in the park. So to give you an idea, this, the quality of the guides I've worked with in Africa, it is uh I mean, so I remember the guides I worked with in Zambia. Just become a just a driving guide. I mean, it, th- mm. their written exam was a thousand questions, and it wasn't multiple choice. It was like like you had to write out whatever it is. I mean, th- that was just one aspect. And then they would have to go out with guides as if they were guiding them. Mm. And once they pass that, they can become a driving guide, but then become a walking guide. Even a lot more training. I mean, 
it's amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, the guides there have, um, I mean, they could tell you essentially almost every bird by sight and sound. They know wow. a lot of the scientific names of pretty much almost all the, a lot of the grasses and bushes and shrubbery and, and trees. Obviously, their knowledge of wildlife is impeccable. Um, I mean, obviously, they're also from the local communities, too, so they've right. grown up in it. So they also have a, a certain uh, working knowledge of a lot of the different uses of plants, you know, from mm-hmm. what you can eat and, and the medicinal uses. But it just it, they're walking encyclopedias. And I, I could see, boy, if you had more of those people, or you know, that could – we're guiding those that level of guide guiding into uh, mm-hmm. into the parks with with maybe you know no more than maybe eight people. I think if you get more than mm-hmm. that, I think that you get. But yeah, I think it, mm-hmm. it could create jobs. It kind of maybe those people are willing. Maybe those hotels that are willing to create that cadre of guides and and tour vans. Maybe they mm-hmm. can sub- circumvent the whether ticket and entry or whatever whatever restrictions that are being put on people to enter the park, maybe mm-hmm. give maybe give some type type of um, um, just an incentive to move towards guiding. So I, again, it's definitely a uh, there's it's definitely above my pay grade and definitely something right. that hopefully mm-hmm. it's being talked about, but. But yeah, no, we're we're killing our parks. It's it's I think recreation is 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 underrated as far as its effect on wildlife right. and natural resources in the parks. It's uh, I think that's really the next big um, threat to wildlife is uh, yeah. more more people in the woods. I mean, it's great people mm-hmm. love nature and getting out in nature, but when you have outdoor companies and magazines and publications marketing different areas to death, come up with new gadgets, mm-hmm. new tools, new ways to get out mm-hmm. in the, in the woods or in nature. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it's uh it's, it's challenging. I mean, it's tough to tell somebody you can't go into the woods. Right. It's easier to tell, I mean, it'd be, you know, it's, how do we educate people at least to recreate more uh, appropriately? Well, thank you, Tom. Uh, this is Louisa Wilcox with Grizzly Times, and we're here talking today with Tom Mazarizi. Thank you so much. If you want to learn more about the Grizzly and what you can do to help, subscribe to our newsletter at grizzlytimespodcast.org. And if you can, give us a review. 